So, like I said, we're going to be starting a new series, which is going to take us through the next five weeks, that is known as the Five Solas. Um, We typically like to preach through books of the Bible here, but we're going to be taking a little detour to go into some history and look at some of the historical confessions of our faith. This intro will be a little bit longer and will be kind of detailed in its history, but it's worth it, so stick with it. At the end of October, we are coming up on the 500th anniversary of an event that marks what most people consider to be the start of a movement to reclaim the clarity of the gospel, the purity of the church, things that we may take for granted, like access to God's word and to be able to have your own copy of God's word in your own language and not have to go through priests or clergy as any sort of mediator between you and Christ. So that movement started that we know today as the Reformation. Um, One of the things that I'm going to be espousing during this series is the term the Reformation would be such an offensive term to the people who were part of the Reformation because they never saw a Reformation that would demand the definite article the in front of it. They actually had a saying called siempre reformanda ecclesia, that the church must always be reforming itself. We have a gospel that doesn't change, but the church should always be looking directly at that cross and saying, are we staying centered on the gospel and not making secondary issues into priorities. Some people know this movement that we're going to be looking at today as the Protestant Reformation. And I just want to give a little bit of disclaimer. We live in an area where 77% of the people who call this area of Ocean County their home are professing Catholics. Obviously, when you look at Martin Luther in the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, there was a bit of a schism with the Catholic Church. What I want to be clear on as we get into this series I'm not here to bash anybody who comes from that tradition, but there are going to be some things where historically we're going to have to look at that still is not bashing. Even within the evangelical branches that I come to, that I hold to, that I come from, there are some things that we have to look at. Like why did it take 250 years into our nation's history to realize that slavery was wrong? And why was the Bible, why were Bible-believing Christians not speaking up for that? So There are warts all over the place. This is not to poke fun. This is to give historical context to some of the professions of our faith. But the date that we're celebrating as the 500th anniversary comes from a historical marker called the 95 Theses. It was a day when a relatively unknown Catholic monk, hear me on that. That's something that most people don't realize about Martin Luther. A Catholic monk nailed 95 complaints about Roman rulership of the church to the door of the church building in a little place called Wittenberg, Germany. And it's hardly the kind of thing that would start a movement, let alone a reformation. This event has been so crusted over with tradition that we use the word the in front of it, and it was called the time that somebody nailed um, something to the cathedral door. But this was actually a really common practice. I mean, think about... Just on your drive here, all the signs for yard sales you probably saw on telephone poles. 
Think about all of the things that were advertised on Facebook the last time you scrolled through. Think of all the emails that somebody sent you hitting you up for money for some cause. Websites that are devoted to giving information about things. You didn't have that back then. So if you wanted to communicate a singular truth to a large amount of people, you put it where the most amount of people would gather and you nailed it to the church door. Hardly the kind of action that we would know as starting a movement. Most of what we know of the 95 Theses, these would not be areas that would really have much cultural significance in our culture today. Most of them were written after a man named Johann Tetzel came in preaching this message of fear-mongering in Germany, telling people that there was this in-between place between death and before you were able to get to heaven called purgatory, where man would be sentenced to have to burn off the sins that were not covered in this life, so essentially saying that Christ's blood was not able to fully justify that there were still things that were left over and we had to go to a period to either be prayed out, have the merit of the saints be able to get us out, or have something called an indulgence to be able to get us out. An indulgence was what Johann Tetzel came and was selling throughout Saxony in Germany, um, and it was to raise money for the building of what we know today as St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. And he preached this message of fear-mongering, telling people Christ's sacrifice was not enough to give eternal life for them or their loved ones, and that they would eventually end up in this place called purgatory. He had a famous saying that translated into English as, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So he was the original health, wealth, preacher. The only way to combat that kind of um, was this place that you were going to end up at was to buy what was called an indulgence. And that meant to give money to the Catholic Church and that money went towards the building of St. Peter's and what would supposedly purchase a blessing from the Pope that would spring either you or a future loved one from purgatory. So this zealous young Catholic monk named Martin Luther saw through the fear-mongering, and he was able to see through this fake artificial gospel, and he was able to see scripture and reason invalidated these points. He said that it was not scriptural, that it didn't make logical sense, because think about this. If the Pope had the power to be able to spring souls from purgatory, Luther's complaint was, then why not just open the doors and fling the gates wide open and let every soul out of there into the paradise of glory? So therefore, since he did not, means he's either not willing to or that he cannot because that was not scriptural. But remember, and this is important for this series, that Martin Luther was still a loyal son of the Catholic Church, and he was devoted as you could possibly be. He was considered a monk of such integrity and spiritual intensity that there are actually writings from some of his spiritual leaders where people would say that he would exasperate them by the way that he would just come and confess sin after sin after sin. Um, there was one quote where somebody essentially told him, Martin, come back when you have something worthy of actually confessing. 
Um, I heard that some uh, historian once said that hearing Martin Luther's confessions was like being pelted to death by popcorn. Um, so <laughs> he was so accustomed to his sin that he would just share this over and over and over. And it was in his quest for personal piety, self-righteousness, but also around this time, something really neat happened. He started reading Paul's letter to the Romans, and he realized that we're not saved based on our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. And he realized that when people talked about this merit that was given to our account from texts such as Colossians 1, 24 and 25, that it was really talking about Christ's merit, the only merit, the only one who's ever earned any merit, and that that was being applied to our account through this beautiful doctrine called justification, and that it wasn't that there were righteous people called saints who you could pray to or could pray for you who had an extra little bit of leftover righteousness that they could sprinkle onto your account to be able to deal with your unrighteousness issues. So on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther wrote down 95 statements of errors, mostly having to do with purgatory, indulgences, theology of merit, and the papacy, and he nailed them to the door of the church. And please remember, he wasn't trying to break from the church. He was trying to reform the church, hence the name Reformation. Well, you might know how the story goes from there. We're about to get into our text in a moment, but they did not listen. They were not happy about this rogue monk undermining their cash cow system and preaching this beautiful news of God's free, sovereign grace and salvation being a gift of grace rather than something that's earned through piety, church involvement, and most importantly, your money and your being willing to come under Roman authority. So eventually the attempts to reform the church were ill-received by Rome, and they showed just how closely they were affiliated to the state by rolling out widespread persecution to all the people who were denying Rome's authority. And at the same time, think about this. The Germans were getting upset. Germany and Rome always had sort of a touchy relationship with one another. The, the, when the Roman Empire actually fell at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, it was the Germans that were coming down and sacking Rome. So they weren't always playing nicely with one another. If you don't believe me, go hang out with the Shums, and then you'll see what real Germans can be like after the service. Um, you would have said it if I didn't. Um, and then as they're getting poorer and poorer, they were not okay with continuing to give money to a basilica somewhere in Rome while bankrupting the country of their own people. So what you have going on, to give you the context, and I know that there's a long intro, but it's worth it because I don't know how many of you study this stuff. What's going on here is you have a theological and a societal revolt going on at the same time. It ended up waging bloody war for a couple of hundred years, and there are still remnants of it that can be seen in many places today. So 
there are these different theological memorization tools that were given to us to capture what the Reformation teaching was about. We have the tulip that maybe some of you are familiar with, or we have different synods and confessions and catechisms, but one that's been used pretty widely are known as the five solas, which leads us to our study. The five solas are kind of similar to the tulip. If you look for the tulip in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, you're not going to find T-U-L-I-F. That came much later at the Synod of Dort. But if you go back and read through it, you'll see that the writings were always there to begin with. Well, there was nobody that spelled out this document called the Five Solas until much later. But you're able to see that these things were implicit and explicit in the writings of the Reformers. So with all of that intro aside, here are the Five Solas. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Christus, Sola Deo Gloria. For those of you that don't speak Latin, we will get into what each of these mean over the next five weeks. And we're going to be starting with Sola Scriptura. Why start with Sola Scriptura? Sola meaning alone. Scriptura meaning scripture. Why start with scripture alone? Because how would we have the basis for anything else that we believe in this Christian faith or in this life or in this walk if we don't first start out with a basis of understanding that God's word is the foundation by which we rely upon? Um, Billy Graham, it was a famous moment where one of his best friends left the faith and started going towards theological liberalism. And he knelt down over his Bible and said, God, I'm really struggling with some passages, but if I struggle with believing that any of these passages should be in there, then the whole thing begins to be undermined. He realized that be able to really preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with passion and be able to believe in what he was teaching, that he had to believe in the foundation of Scripture being reliable. So we start with Scripture, and then the other things that we teach are going to come out of that. So I'm going to read our passage and jump in. If you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, um, and we will be going into, um, or, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and then we'll be going into chapter 4. It's also going to be projected up behind me. Starting in verse 14, it says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned. And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God... And of Jesus Christ, who is the judge, the living, and the dead, and by his appearing, and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and understanding and teaching. So why are we beginning with sola scriptura? There is an order to this for a reason. It starts with this concept called revelation. And I'm not talking about the book of revelation. The term in this context means kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's the study of how God revealed himself to mankind. And and there's this type of revelation 
that everybody is able to see that's known as general revelation. It's written about extensively in passages like Romans 1 or Psalm 19. That's the type of revelation that's referring to things that can be known strict by, strictly by looking at creation and the cosmos. It's basically saying that God has revealed himself to mankind through the awe-inducing awe of his creation. Psalm 19 tells us the cosmos displays the beauty of God's handiwork. Romans 1 tells us that creation itself reveals so much about God that we have to actually actively suppress it in order not to notice. So strictly evolutionary biology that denies the presence of God being foundational behind it, this is getting at, and not just them, but many different avenues of study and science is saying that you have to actually suppress that which is logical. That logic would tell you that I look out at the cosmos and say, this was not chaos that created order, and then order continued to order itself even further out of chaos. That chaos induces chaos. Chaos does not create order. So to believe so means that you are suppressing the truth about what God has revealed of himself to mankind in order not to notice. So to be able to look at the planets and not see that somebody flung them into orbit means that you don't want to see it. To be able to look at the universe and realize that this could not have just come out of chaos is something that you have to be suppressing in order to believe. To be able to see the beauty of the universe and realize that there is one who must be infinitely more beautiful in order to create something so beautiful. To not believe that means you're actively uh, suppressing it. But that's not enough to be saved. Man doesn't look at the stars and say, wow, there's a savior in Israel. And I need to believe in him, do they? Well, yeah, kind of, on Christmas. Um, but that's cheating. I mean, since then, I don't know of anybody that's looked at stars. We don't see any accounts of people that just looked up at the stars and said, wow, that's telling me that, that Jesus Christ died for my sins and I need to believe in him and that he was resurrected from the grave. And if I believe in him, I'll have eternal life. Um, we might look at the ocean and say that there needs to be an even greater one to hold it together. But we don't look at the ocean and say, wow, I need a savior to die for me because I have a problem called sin. So there has to be this area called special revelation. God had to reveal himself through his scriptures that we might understand our need for salvation. He must reveal himself through the regenerating of dead hearts because, look, dead hearts don't believe things. He had to reveal himself to your dead heart for it to be able to believe. So he had to regenerate it before he could even give you the gift of faith to be able to come to the place of belief. He must even reveal to us the ability to have faith because left to our own devices, according to Paul and Romans, man does not seek after God. There is none who does good. No, not one. God must start the transaction by taking the elect, regenerating the, regenerating the heart, giving you the faith to believe, bringing you to repentance through the means of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it all starts with scripture. And that's what Paul's pointing at here in verse 14. He says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned 
and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and from the childhood have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. So, so Paul encourages Timothy, continue being a student of the scriptures. Then he calls those scriptures the sacred writings. And then he says something really powerful. He says that these scriptures are able to make one wise unto salvation. Scripture is actually simultaneously, check this out, this is the beauty of scripture. It is simultaneously fighting off your disbelief and bringing you to the place of belief at the same time because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We're also told that scripture being under it just renews our minds. There are many things that can point us to the majesty of a true God, but only scripture is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and is able to just pierce between even bone and marrow. Just an aside, but this is why I don't get Christians who put a low priority on corporate worship and sitting under the preaching of God's word. Um, God's word actually produces within us faith and it renews us. That does not happen in isolation. It cannot. That's not the means through which God ordained these things to take place. But it's also not happening through man-made documents. God's Word is the only book that we could say these things about. Sometimes I'll ask people about their devotions and they'll say, I listen to a lot of sermons or I read this devotional book. And I'm like, man, that's fine, but get in the Word. There are a great many books out there that are very good, but none of them are on a par with Scripture. When I was in Bible college and seminary, I would put my books in my backpack because that's where they belong, but I would carry my Bible under my arm because my Bible didn't belong with those books because it wasn't like those books because those books were written by men and those men were fallible, and this book was holy and inerrant and perfect in its original manuscripts. So God's Word is actively renewing us how can we be wise unto salvation just from reading man-made books from people who are fallen? And that's exactly what the Catholic Church has continued to do and continue to do to this day. It's not Scripture alone. It's Scripture plus the written works of the saints. It's Scripture plus the prayers of the saints. It's Scripture plus the merit of the saints. It's the things that the Pope states as he's sitting in his chair that he proclaims to be ex-cathedra. Well, Paul actually goes deeper into the power of Scripture in verse 16. Look with me. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped, complete for every good work. So he says that scripture is literally breathed out from the mouth of God. Every single word of it, every word in the original manuscripts are without error and perfect in every single way. And it's breathed out by God for our benefit, according to verse 16. That alone should be enough to convince any naysayer that they have no business putting other works on a par with Scripture. It doesn't matter how good of a document the book was. 
I've read some really great books that were filled with some really theologically rich and accurate material, but I've, even the author themselves would never say, oh, this work is just God-breathed. I've preached some sermons that were better than others, but even when I've preached my best sermon, I don't say, man, that was God-breathed. That was inspired by the Holy Spirit. I would say something like, by God's grace, I was able to explain his text and his spirit illuminated his son through his word and his text revealed his character. And I was some dummy that was able to be up here and open my mouth and allow some of that to be able to take place. The sermon simply explained it, called us to obey it, maybe even applied it to the heart. But the sermon itself was not inspired because of the unique way that God self-authenticates its word. It should be enough to say that there is nothing that should be able to be put on a par with Scripture. And then he gives several verses or reasons about the power of God's inspired word. He says it's profitable for teaching. This is why when I sit with somebody who is not a believer. I don't start with trying to convince them about things like the age of the universe or show them all these clever things about a global flood versus a localized flood or any of that. I just start with scripture. I don't have to be able to make a case to use scripture. Scripture is truth. Charles Spurgeon once said about this, that you don't have to teach a lion. You don't have to go and defend a lion. Just let the lion out of the cage, and the lion will defend itself. That's what Scripture is like. It's able to teach just because of its own perfection and God's self-authentication of it. He says it's profitable for reproof. I was curious because the term actually seems just like the next term that comes in the sequence, but in Greek... It's the term elencho, it means to persuade or to convict. So God's inspired word is able to persuade us in a convicting manner. I want to ask, I want to step away from history lesson and I want to just preach for a second. When's the last time real genuine conviction took place in your heart? I mean the last time you were sitting under the preaching of the word of God and you were cut to the heart by conviction. I get into a lot of conversations with people after a sermon on Sunday, and a lot of times it's about platitudes or some little trinket that they picked up in the sermon. But rarely is it, oh, oh, it hit my heart. It revealed something. God did something. There was a transaction that was taking place in here as I was sitting underneath the word. I was convicted, and I want to, in case you don't understand what I mean by conviction, there is a big difference between conviction and condemnation, and it took me a little while to be able to delineate between the two. Here's the difference. Conviction exposes the beauty of Christ, and it makes me want to be like Jesus. Condemnation exposes my filth, and it makes me want to run the other way. So if you're here and you feel conviction, run to Jesus. Conviction is not condemnation. Conviction means that you have a healthy, believing heart. You should be experiencing conviction on the regular if you have the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus even said so. He said, what did the Holy Spirit come to do? He said, it came to convict the world. 
of unrighteousness, starting with the hearts of the people who have the Holy Spirit within them. Scripture is profitable for correction. It's profitable for training in righteousness. How cool is that, that it doesn't just expose the errors. God is not a deconstructionalist. And so many people can tell you everything that's wrong with everything, right? As soon as anything comes out in the news, well, that's wrong. You know, even though these people have probably spent their whole life studying these things and all you have read is a Twitter feed on it, you're educated enough to be completely dismissive of it and snarky as you're dismissive too. People can deconstruct like nobody's business. This is saying it doesn't just deconstruct, but it can actually rebuild that which it deconstructs because it's powerful. So where is God's word training you in righteousness? Where is God's word not just convicting you of sin, but actively making you more like Jesus? Where is God's word producing within you, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, that aroma of Christ? I could just walk into your house and be like, wow, there has been some transformation going on because this person smells like Jesus. That's what it means to be training in righteousness. It gives the follower of God everything they need to be complete. Again, that's not something you could say about some book that's written. And I'm not knocking books. I've got shelves full of them. I love books. But any book that I have other than God's word is not enough to make you complete and it equips you for every good work. So if man knew this and they had access and um, they had access to this. How did they ever get to the point where they put man's works on a par with Scripture? And it really comes down to two streams of thought. The first one is kind of complicated and a little bit circular. It's this idea that the councils gave us the Bible, so therefore the councils and official dogma of the church should be able to stand on a par with Scripture because they gave us Scripture. And the second is more political and kind of ugly. But first, the first reason, for the first few centuries, people didn't have copies of the Bible. You didn't have a pocket New Testament. In order to make a Bible, you had to have either a papyrus industry, or you had to have lots of cows that you could slaughter to be able to go and write on that parchment. And let me just explain the first 300 years of the church. People were worshiping in catacombs. You know what the catacombs are? We call them the catacombs because it sounds romantic. It was the graveyard. It was the underground area where the tombs are at. I have pictures of me by the shelved tombs where the martyrs were laid out in Rome. I've been to the catacombs. People who have to worship underground and use a little secret symbol to be able to mark the location of their worship probably are not starting a Bible-making factory right out in the open. So right after the Battle of Milvian Bridge in 313, you started to have people start to come together and say, we need to codify this, and we need to get these books together. So you had the Council of Nicaea and Carthage, and they came together and agreed upon the 66 books. They didn't give us the 66 books. They didn't create which should be the 66 books. God self-authenticated his word by showing that the word was perfect without error, inerrant, and he was even proclaiming it to be the word. They just agreed upon it, and that's where our present bound copies of the Bible came in 
to being. But at no times did they read back the documents of these people. They never saw themselves as giving us the Bible. They never saw that what they were doing was on a par with Scripture or that they were even with Scripture, and especially not that they were sitting above Scripture. They always knew that they were coming under it. And another just quick tangent to you guys, before I open my Bible and read it, I ask God a specific prayer each time. I say, God, help me to come under this work and not to ever have the audacity to come and think that I should sit above it. And I challenge you to pray that prayer. It humbles you as you go to God's word. And the second reason is a bit uglier. It's tied up in politics. The Roman Empire knew that the church could be used to be able to suppress the people and keep them in line. The church knew that the Roman Empire could be used to fund the church and give it money. So the two came together and mutually scratched one another's backs for hundreds and hundreds of years, obscuring the masses and keeping the masses under their thumb and under control. So that's the backdrop that this sola comes, comes from. And it came to a head with a man named Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. And I'm going to show you a clip of that and then finish up and then we'll close out our sermon. Martin Luther, are you the author of these writings? I am. Do you recant what you have written here? I cannot renounce all of my works because they are not all the same. First are those books in which I have described Christian faith and life so simply that even my opponents have admitted that these works are useful. To renounce these writings would be unthinkable, for that would be to renounce accepted Christian truths. He is not here to make speeches, only to answer. The second group of my work is directed against the foul doctrine and evil living of the Pope's past and present. No! Through the laws of the Pope and the doctrines of men, the consciences of the faithful have been miserably vexed and flayed. If I recant these books, I will do nothing but add strength to tyranny and open not just the windows but also the doors to this great ungodliness. He has condemned himself. In the third group, I have written against private persons and individuals who uphold Roman tyranny and have attacked my own efforts to encourage piety to Christ. I confess that I've written too harshly. I am but a man and I can know. Only let my errors be proven by scripture. And I will revoke my work and throw my books into the fire. You have not answered the question. You, Martin Luther, 
will not draw into doubt those things which the Catholic Church has judged already. Things that have passed into usage, rite, and observance. The faith that Christ, the most perfect lawgiver, ordained. The faith the martyrs strengthened with their blood. You wait in vain for a disputation over things that you are obligated to believe. Now give your answer. Yes or no. Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason, and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot. And I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. That's word for word the transcript of what actually happened that day at the Diet of Worms, to the best of our knowledge. Luther said that his soul was held captive to Scripture. I showed you that so you can get a visual picture. That I know that this is a long intro, but man, this is powerful stuff. This is, this is life-shaping, life-changing stuff. He refused to acknowledge that these things had any business being put on a par with Scripture. So as I look at history, I have to look and see where people step in the wrong direction. You have a couple of choices. You could either say, oh, look at those silly, superstitious people from yesteryear. And that's what most people do. They, they, they're dismissive of them when looking at history. And I just want to say that's an awfully elitist approach. Most of the books I read are by people who have been dead by centuries. And when you read those books, you do not draw the conclusion that people have gotten profoundly more intelligent because we could take things and put it in 140 characters or less and say absolutely nothing and think that it's meaningful. So I don't see it that people have gotten more intellectually smart, certainly not more ethically intelligent, and certainly our understanding of righteousness or just simple right and wrong and justice has not developed. We might be more technologically savvy. I admit, I can't go back in history and toss Martin Luther a cell phone and be like, yo, bro, you know, figure that. So does that make him dumber than me, though? 
um, for just not understanding the technological revolution. The other way that you can look at it is the heart's still the same. It always has been and it always will be. There's nothing new under the sun. So my goal today as I go to wrap up is to give you more than just a history lesson to show you that people, because the heart is still the same, still put things on a level with Scripture. Just a couple. Comfort. Jesus said, go and make disciples. He didn't seem to hold comfort in very high esteem. He's commanded that every single disciple in the world be a maker of other disciples. That commandment applies to everyone who bears the name of Jesus. And not just in the Great Commission, though that would have been enough if it was just in the Great Commission. It is implicit and explicit all over the Bible, even in Jesus' very own mission statement that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Yet statistics show that majority, overwhelming majority, like over 90% majority of Christians who call themselves disciples are not actively involved in the process of making disciples because it's uncomfortable. So therefore, when it comes to comfort versus God's word, which one wins? And if it's comfort, then how can we not say that we are taking our comfort in Scripture and Scripture is not winning? Seriously. I want you to think about that question. And it seems like other things like giving, serving, regular attendance for Sunday worship could fit into that category because it's more comfortable not to give generously, not to serve, not to wake up, not to go. And I'm not going to condemn you, man. Like, I'm not here to say this to condemn you, but I do hope if that's you that you are convicted because I'm going to tell you that you will not get a comfort-driven lifestyle from the Bible. So if comfort and the Bible were pitted against each other, which would win? I'm asking you, really, if comfort and the Bible were pitted against each other, which one wins? A couple more emotions. And this one really shows me that the willingness to toss sola scriptura right out the window. If I just stuck with just real ones and didn't even go into hyperbole, I could prove it. Well, I just refuse to interact with that person in my church family. But what about the Bible saying not to even bring your sacrifice before the altar before you go and make it right and to leave the sacrifice and go and talk to that person? Yeah, yeah, I know that, but I mean, that person really irks me and gets on my nerves. Okay, well then you've chosen that your emotions are higher and Scripture is subservient to your emotions. I've been around, um, I've talked to people that have done this one. I still don't get this, this passive-aggressive attempt. I haven't been around in a month. And nobody even called me. So therefore, I'll show you by not showing up for a month. Yeah, you showed them, all right. Uh, The Bible says don't even have a hint of bitterness in the root of your heart. Ah, I'm just going to go and be bitter. Well, again, you've allowed Scripture to be subservient to emotions. I have unforgiveness in my heart. And I'm just going to leave this church and maybe slander a couple people on the way out the door or just duck out without even dealing with any about it. Well, what about the Bible saying that whole 70 times 7 thing? Yeah, but I'm just ready to move on. Okay, so you've chosen to allow your unforgiveness to be higher than Scripture. Experientialism. I often hear this in the charismania end of things. Hey, let me tell you about my religious experience. Well, that's great, but your religious experience does not line up with anything that I'm reading in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Well, how are you going to tell me that? I did it, bro. I don't 
care what you did. It has to be captive to Scripture. Who are you to argue or deny my experience? Who are you to argue against the Bible? Should be the question that they're being asked. Intellectualism and rationalism. I just heard one of my favorite authors say that Christians need to get rid of biblical creationism because it's an embarrassment and no rationally minded person could continue to hold to it with good conscience. Okay? So your rational wins and the Bible doesn't. That's what you've just said. You've also said that I'm not purchasing your books anymore. Um, Systems. And when we put our systems in front of the Bible, I really thought about just preaching the whole message backstage and just having a pile of clothes sitting there because of all this stupid September 23rd junk that's been going around. You know why people believe this? Because they put their systems above the Bible. So they say, oh, well, I've got this mathematical system, plus my belief in the rapture means that I'm just going to be a pile of clothes tomorrow. Come on, man. Come on. Current events. I feel like every single time someone sneezes in the Middle East, it's an answer to some prophecy. And then when it ends up not answering a prophecy, we move on and be like, oh, but they didn't sneeze in the right way. They need to sneeze around the red heifer. And then the red heifer will be combined with Jerusalem. Enough. Stop putting it on a par with Scripture. If you read your Bible and your newspaper like this, you need to get a biblical worldview, man. So does Scripture alone really characterize the way that you live your life? Is it producing what we just read in 2 Timothy? It's because sola scriptura and the power of Scripture that he can say there's no chapter divisions in the original Bible. It was supposed to go right into chapter 4 when he's saying, I'm charging you because this book is so powerful and it gives life. Timothy, preach the word. He doesn't say go preach people's books or go preach man's opinion because you guys, people have asked me about my fascination with swords. Um, It comes from a verse in the book of Hebrews that says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The books on my shelf aren't. Um, The song on the radio isn't. The sermon that I listened to on the way to church didn't. But man, when you hold to the awe-inducing power of Scripture, you could say that this book is living and active. And this book is sharper than this sword. And this book can pierce to the heart much quicker than this thing ever could. So a couple of reflection questions. Do you consistently read God's word? Are you in the book? Do you know the book? Are you, going, are you growing in your understanding of God's word? Man, I, I've got to just be honest with you. It scared me to see how much biblical literacy has just been on the decline for decades Now, do you believe every word of God's book that it's God-breathed? Do you functionally believe every word of Scripture? If there is a battle of comfort versus Scripture, who wins? Honestly, you don't do any favors by lying about the answer. If you left here and there was a battle between comfort and Scripture, which one wins? Is Scripture the base 
that you continually come back to and say, man, my world just got rocked. I need to be with my nose in this book. And I need to recalibrate by having my nose in this book and getting to know it. If your thoughts came into direct conflict with Scripture, which one wins? And that'll tell you who's the hero of the story. Is it you? Or is it Jesus? And your continual submission to Jesus, making him the hero of the story. Let me pray. God, thank you that you are the hero of the story. I pray that we would joyfully receive you as the hero of the story as we partake of communion right now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to partake of communion. This is a reminder.